0: All right, it was 370 days ago that Beth and I met with the elders of our church to share our intention to conclude our stint as pastor here at North Park, and at that time, we didn't really know what the Lord was up to. We still don't know what what He's up to in that. Things we thought a year ago, especially about our future and our location, the location of our future, we... We don't think those things anymore, but it it has been a good year. It's been a very fast year. We've been quite blessed by the encouragement and the prayers of of many. Excuse me. And although as of now, we do not intend, as we did a year ago, to move south, although as I was shoveling the driveway and enjoying that refreshing breeze we had this morning... (laughs) I was rethinking that decision, uh, but we don't intend to move south. However, we do intend to drive that direction early tomorrow morning and have a week with grandchildren in Georgia and then in Florida, some time with friends on the East Coast, uh, be preaching at uh, two churches on the East Coast at uh, the end of January, 1st of February, then we get some time on the West Coast before we, uh, we head back, expecting to be back here around early March. We don't know what March and beyond holds for us, although our Sundays will certainly be spent somewhere else, even as our thoughts and prayers are residing here with this body that we love. Now, given who we know you to be and who our Lord is, we expect here wonderful things about how God is providing, how God is using you within His loving purposes. Now, whomever you bring in as the next pastor at North Park Church, he will likely not know as many good jokes as I know. And so before I get to the important subjects for today, I want to lay two more good ones on you. One's a little long, one's very brief. So here's the long one. A group of 40-year-old girlfriends uh, discuss where they should meet for their annual get-together, their annual dinner. And after much discussion, it was agreed among them that they would uh, get together and have dinner at the Riverview restaurant because, well, the the waiters there, those young waiters, were really nice-looking. Ten years later, at the age of 50, uh, the ladies got together to discuss where they should have their get-together, and they eventually, after some discussion, decided on the Riverview restaurant because the food was pretty good and the wine selection was excellent. Ten years later, at the age of 60, They had the same discussion, where should we meet for our annual dinner? And uh, now at 60, they decided that they would go to the Riverview restaurant because it was a peaceful, quiet place. Uh, It had a beautiful view of the river. Ten years later, now they're 70 years of age, and they discuss where they should have their get-together. And uh, they landed on the Riverview restaurant because it's wheelchair accessible (laughs) and even has an elevator. And then, 10 years later, at the age of 80, just 20 years away, Mike, uh, at the age of 80, they uh, talked about where they should meet uh, for their annual get-together, and after discussing all the possibilities, they landed on the Riverview restaurant, because after all, they had never been there before. (laughs) 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 So... The changes we go through in life, the changes that may come with age, Uh, and speaking of change, my short joke. A Zen master is visiting a hot dog stand. This is in New York City, where they have a lot of those hot dog kiosks, and uh, he visits the hot dog stand, and he goes up to the vendor, and he says this, "'Make me one with everything.'" Now, that's hilarious just in itself, <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> the hot dog vendor fixes him a hot dog, hands it to him. The Zen master gives him a $20 bill. The, uh, the vendor puts it in his uh, cash box and says, have a good day. And the Zen master says, what about my change? And he says, oh, sir, change comes from within. <laughs> okay. Well, sometimes it does. Uh, At other times, change is imposed upon us from the outside by by age, by circumstances, by decisions that others make. Change, though, it's certainly very real. It's often very uncomfortable, and uh, Beth and I are feeling it. Some of you are feeling it, but as believers, we walk in confidence that our shepherd... Is the Lord of all change, and He has good ends in mind through all the changes we endure, and sometimes enjoy. It has uh, been awesome for me to be able to teach more through the Book of Romans uh, in this these fall months. The last chapters of Romans have been sweet and practical, and uh, for this day, however, I approach things differently. Instead of taking my cues from a particular text, I simply prayed, Lord, Father, what would you have me say to your people on my way out? What may prove most helpful? And in praying this through, I decided to take a look at the examples that we have in Scripture of leaders who had an opportunity to speak a final word to their flock, What did they have to say? How did they approach it? And what follows is the fruit of that study, linked with some concerns that are particularly relevant for the time in which we live. And so, let's pray as we get into it. Father, we ask once again that Your Word would always be our rule, Your Spirit our teacher and Your glory, our preeminent concern, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So Yogi Berra said, among other things, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, maybe you find that helpful. At times of change, individuals and churches face critical decisions that will shape their future. A leadership change is such a juncture as that. Moses certainly knew this. After his pastorate, I was talking to a brother this morning, just resigned from his pastorate as well. Uh, And I'll be seeing a friend that just retired after 35 years in his church. Moses, 80 years. (laughs) 80 years he led the, the people of Israel. That's how long his pastor was. And he says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And then in verse 19... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So in Scripture, I read several addresses given by leaders like Moses. As they move on, either into their next life or to their next calling, there are speeches from Moses and from Joshua and from David and a couple from the Apostle Paul. It was not hard to discover certain themes throughout these farewell addresses. They provide us, in fact, with three notable points. How about that? Which I will echo as I depart my role at North Park Church. Point number one. Was this constant theme stand firm on the Word of God? Now, I just realized I left my Bible on the front row and I need it as a visual aid at this point. Stand firm on the Word of God. Stay true, stay faithful, stay devoted. To what God has said in Scripture. Now, if you've been here before, it can't seem odd to hear that coming from my mouth. You have heard it before, but it is worth, I believe, one (coughs) one last expression. And I refer you then to what our forefathers have said. Back to Moses, Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. "...that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you." Now, those commandments and statutes, they were the Word of God to His people. Two verses later, what we just read, "...I call heaven and earth to witness that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, choose life by loving the Lord your God by..." What's the next part say? "...obeying His voice." And please don't heed anyone that suggests to you that, well, love for God is important, but love for His Word, not so much. You love Him, you listen to His voice, you heed His Word. Oh, but there's more from Moses, chapter 32, verse 45. I think we have another verse there. Thank you. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command to your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life, and by this word you will prolong your days in the land. Now, don't know if you notice, four times in those few verses we read the word word or the word words, Moses was emphatic that the people needed to treat the Word of God as they heard it from him with submissive reverence. Not just reverence, but submissive reverence. Then he passed on his leadership to Joshua. And when Joshua retired many years down the road, Uh, Joshua apparently, as he was preparing for his final address, remembered what Moses had said, and he basically provided part B, a reiteration of what his older brother had said. He says, now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old and advanced in years That Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. Next verse. uh, That's it? I'll stop there. I need a scripture sheet in case we're missing a verse. Thank you, Dan. Uh, There, because my notes indicate we were supposed to go through verse 3 on that one. Or did that go through verse 3? And I just can't see it. He said, by by the way, as as I'm waiting to get my bearings here, let me just pause and speak a word to those of you under 50 here. On behalf of the senior crowd, which Mike Stitt is now joined today, (laughs) welcome to Sexajarianism. Uh, On behalf of the senior crowd, this is a great way to refer to us. We are not codgers. We are not geezers. We're not really even old people. What we are is advanced. We are advanced in Years. I like that. We pick up with the punchline of Joshua's speech. Let me see here. So uh, the passage says, for it is not a lie. Oh, we did read the entire thing uh, that uh, we were supposed to read there. So we, no, 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 verse verse 3 didn't make it into our Scripture sheet. I guess it's not important. But let me just uh, move on from that with the punchline of advanced Joshua's speech, which is in verse 6 that we have. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So what does Joshua point them to in his final message as their leader? He points them to the word of God. North Park Church is a member of a very young denomination, just over 40 years old, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the EPC. And why did our founders choose to leave the mainline denomination and start over with a new name in a new denomination for this particular church in a new location, It was out of this very commitment to the Word of God. Our founders saw that the old denomination had abandoned the scriptures. They had turned aside from the book of the law and were dying as a result. And so, not out of a superior sense of righteousness, but simply out of a desire to survive spiritually, a separation had to occur into an assembly of churches that valued the word and would build upon that firm foundation. So praise God they did. But understand that organizations, denominations, colleges, and churches often experience what some call mission drift, familiar with that? Mission drift. Often usually they slide off the firm foundation upon which they were initially built. And so our our admonition to you, make it your commitment here, leaders, members of North Park Church, not to let that occur in this place among these people, not in Andy Stite's lifetime, not in Caleb Stite's lifetime either. And I offer more on this theme now from the first good king of Israel, David, who passes on the torch to his son, his successor, Solomon. And listen to what He says, it may sound familiar, 1 Kings 2, verse 1. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. I think we do have verse 3 on this one. Uh Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. That you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So I ask again, where does David point to Solomon, his successor as king? To the scriptures. And now to the witness of the Apostle Paul. Acts 20, he says farewell to the elders there in Ephesus, and toward the end of his address to them, he says this in verse 32: Brothers, I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you One more for you, 2 Timothy 4 this time, Paul addressing his young mentor, Timothy, and he says in verse 2, you're familiar with this, I think, preach the word, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, this is the NLT, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow the desires and will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And uh, I, I think then that we've made the point from enough portions of God's Word to conclude this is a good thing to consider at a change of leadership. Stand firm on the Word of God. Keep it central to the pulpit. Keep it central to the fellowship. Keep it central to the outreach and live it out despite what is happening in the broader culture. Well, that takes us to our second point for today. The great leaders in Scripture at the end of their lives or their ministries, they always issued warnings. Yeah? Let me show you. We just read one from Paul, didn't we? 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, what it just said there about uh, there would be teachers that are raised up who will lead people astray and people will look for these teachers to follow whatever their itching ears want to hear. And my goodness, that surely applies to 2024 in the United States of America, when the options people have for spiritual teaching are so, well, they're endless, aren't they? Folks can hunt out whatever message appeals to their pride and and their flesh. And with the internet now, the false teachers Abound. They are everywhere. And you see this in the address of Paul that we looked at in Acts 20 as well. Let's go back to that, verse 28 of Acts 20. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, His church, purchased with His own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave not sparing the flock. There's more. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw following. And what's he say at the end? Let's say it together. Watch out. Isn't it interesting? Uh, this is, the church was in its infancy at this point. No television preachers then, but still the enemy was raising up imposters, truth twisters, servants of the lie. In our final weeks, in our study of Romans, we spoke to this as well because Paul mentions it in Romans 16, as well as many other places in his epistles, the danger for the sheep is going to be found in pastures. That's pastures, not pastures. Pastures that look nice, but are filled with poisons and with pests. The danger could come from within the flock, It could also come from the broader world in which we live. That was the concern of Moses and Joshua. Joshua was most direct about this, I think. There in chapter 23, (coughs) verse 7, he said, You will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you are to cling to the Lord your God. Joshua saw that there would be temptations coming from the pagan cultures around the children of Israel in the promised land. Hey, we're always influenced by others. We are. Verse 12, same chapter of Joshua's speech. If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate them with them, and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you." Okay, by the way, did that happen? (laughs) Oh, my, did it ever. Think of the story of Samson. Think of the story of Solomon, so many of the kings of Israel and Judah and the idolatry of the people. Another question, is it happening today? Oh, my. The playgrounds of this world, the delicacies and the pleasures, as well as the subtle falsehoods that we, that we encounter, which come many times with the endorsement of the PhDs and the experts and sometimes even with government sanctions for those who won't go along, there are pressure as you know, to be squeezed into the mold of this world rather than be transformed into the image of our King Jesus. And so, brethren, be alert to the allurements of the world. Look for for ways to reduce their influence lest they draw your heart away from the Redeemer. And you don't want that to happen because the greatest joy, as we've sung, is found in knowing Him. Final point. The third point, flowing from the two above, I think, is simple and clear. Cling to the Lord, okay? Cling to your God and His truth, rather than letting Him go, so you can follow your lust or do those things that gain the approval of the world. Commit yourself to cling to Him. Now, if you've been around me a while, you know I've, I've loved that word, cling, but it is there. It is there in the book. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And the next verse says, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. Okay, okay, the word cling is not there, (laughs) but it could be. Hold fast, it says. Paul will say the same thing in Philippians 2 and verse 16, where he says, say it with me all together, hold firmly to the word of life. (laughs) Now, when I spoke to Community Bible Study for my final address to them in the fall, I ended by saying that I would like it if the image that they have of Dan Henley is that of a man advanced in years who is committed to God and His book, and is standing firm with it against the winds of the world, blowing, good day day to use that illustration, blowing around us. Well, there you go. And then we see it again, Joshua 23, verse 7. You will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you. Mention the name of their gods. Make anyone swear by them or serve them and bow down to them. But you are to... What do you need to do? Clean to the Lord your God. So, in closing, as a shepherd of the sheep, I seek to shine some light for us on where the dangers may come from for Christians and for churches in 2024 in the United States of America. There, there's plenty of points, that, pl- things that could be pointed out. I, this one I think I see clearly. Maybe you will be able to see it clearly. Uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, the devil the devil is a clever fellow. Uh, scripture he, uh, scripture says he comes to us as an angel of light. He penetrates our defenses by appealing to us with those things that that look nice, that sound nice. You know what? They maybe even sound Christian. They maybe even sound biblical. Take, for example, compassion. We obviously value compassion. God is a God of compassion. He calls us to be people of compassion. But could it be that Satan has a way of taking that value and twisting it, turning it into a trap or a snare. Well, that would be just like the devil to do something like that. So my friends, contemplate, consider. Uh, I think of two tendencies, two traps into which believers may fall due in part to their appreciation of Compassion. And those two ways to be caught in a trap that I will note are Marxism and compromise. Just as Joshua called out intermarriage with the pagan nations and idolatry as the two things that at that point in his life were concerning him. So I'm going to attempt to note these. Marxism, some call it socialism. One expression of it we refer to as communism. These are terms intended to encapsulate certain ideas. And when I was young, uh, pretty much, communism at least, was pretty much uniformly despised, except, I think, on a few college campuses, and especially despised within the church. So those who were promoting it went a different route, called it by a different name, downplayed the atheism part, but the basic point of the worldview is that humanity is divided between the oppressed and the oppressors. One group is marked by guilt, the other is marked by their victimhood, and the solutions on both ends involve the government. Take from one group the oppressors, give to the other group the oppressed. The makeup of the oppressed appears to be flexible, I've observed. For Marx, it was the economically downtrodden. The oppressed were the low-income workers in his vision. Nowadays, the term gets applied based upon race and sexuality and gender identity. And for us who love Jesus, who follow the book, there is surely... And there should be an appeal here. We are admonished to lift up the outcast, to care for the poor, to look after the weak. But the Marxist paradigm is not one that just encourages caring persons to look out for the needy. It is used as leverage to manipulate institutions and government into favoring my group over yours. And everything is about groups. Justice is meted out by groups, not according to who you are personally or what you have done. And this paradigm currently influences how we view and relate to matters of gender and race and economics. It's behind a myriad of debates in the government and in schools and, yes, even within the church. But how we view the matter must be rooted in our allegiance to Scripture, to what the Bible says about personal guilt and where it comes from, to what the Bible says about private property and the right to have it, and what the Bible says about the role of government and the role of the family and the role of the church and the role of the individual. The Marxist perspective presents a slew of challenging issues for the church to struggle through, but the struggle for us always has to be oriented around the scriptures, not what the broader culture is saying at any given moment. We stand with the Word of God, and if that pits us against the culture and makes us unpopular with our professors or with our family members or with our presbytery, that is what it means to cling to the Word of God rather than capitulate to the idols that surround us. And understand, my hostility to Marxism in all of its forms is not primarily due to my opposition to, to its opposition to conservative political values, it is due primarily to its opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel Of Christ, that sweet word that we love addresses the deepest needs of every soul. And salvation, brothers and sisters, means essentially deliverance from my guilt before a holy God, not deliverance from your oppression over me. The Marxist paradigm will tell us that uh, some of us, it'll say to some of us that we are innocent victims and so appeals to our pride, whereas Scripture says, would say that we all, not just some... We all have been victimized by sin, and that's a problem. But the bigger problem is our own participation in sin, our own active choice of the antichrist way, our cosmic treason toward our maker. And for that, you and I stand in need of pardon and redemption and recreation. The gospel focuses primarily on our vertical relationship with our maker and says we are the transgressors, we are the debtors to him, while Marxism focuses on our horizontal relationship to other humans and says, that, uh, and says to us that we are owed something by them. They are our debtors. And my dear brothers and sisters, only one of these messages, only one is the power of God unto us. Salvation. So be alert to the traps that are set out by some, traps that are curiously baited with our desire to be and to feel compassionate. And then finally, I note that the devil also uses <laughs> the compassion value to lead us into compromise. Compromise with regard to our teaching, also with regard to certain lifestyle choices. We want so badly for people to come to Christ. We want to remove the obstacles that may be in their way. And if they say that our view of, oh, I don't know, homosexuality is an obstacle, then we want to change our view or grow silent because we do want them to come in. And they say that's a barrier. If our view of women's roles in the church or in the home is a barrier, well, that will have to go too, if we love the lost, right? We can't speak out against certain things, can't say anything about divorce, some wouldn't like that, can't speak about Abortion, stay away too many bristle when we speak to those issues. And don't you dare say anything about those poor, picked-on folks in the trans world, they are suffering enough. Where Where is your compassion? And because we want so much for lost people to like us, we want them to come to our meetings to give us an audience, partly for our sakes, partly for their sakes. We take a file to smooth down any rough edges to our message as the world defines a rough edge. And, hey, it is right, listen to me, it is right and it is wise to eliminate any obstacle that we present to the world that keeps them away. Unless. Unless that obstacle was put there by Our Lord, our Lord who said, the way is narrow and the gate is small. Now, you may think a lot of people do that Jesus is a very, very poor marketer, but we are still His church and we must do things His way. And what is our goal? Disciples who know Him in truth and who walk in obedience to all that Christ has commanded. Brother Piper writes this. There is a sad irony in the seeming success of many Christian churches and schools. The irony is that the more you adjust obscure biblical doctrines to make Christian reality more attractive to unbelievers the less Christian reality there is when they arrive. This means that what looks like success in the short run may, in the long run, prove to be failure. How wonderful it would be if five years from now You could not fit the crowds into this building, looking to come and be a part of North Park Church. Beth and I would rejoice in that, and we'll pray towards that. On the presumption that ministry here is held firm to the Lord and to His Word, that her leaders are king- clinging to Jesus as Lord, and real disciples are being made, obedient. Gentiles who worship God passionately, who connect with each other in a caring community, and who are together impacting the world through word and deed. That's a glorious, glorious mission. It is worthy of your devotion. It is worthy of your zeal. What a privilege it has been for Beth and me to worship to fellowship, to labor with you toward that spectacular end. And as we, and we will continue. We will continue to labor with you in the heavenly places by means of prayer for the years to come. March 15, 2009, I preached my first sermon here at North Park Church. I'm sure many of you remember it well. Uh, Andy Stites at least does somewhat and I preach from the spectacular fifth chapter of John's Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. You're familiar with it. You can come on up, Beth. Only the Lamb is worthy. And as we wrap up, we have... Taking the freedoms granted to us to join together in doing a dual reading of this passage before we wrap up by singing of the glories that are to come. Revelation 5. You got to stand close. Yes.
1: I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals.
0: And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it.
1: And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals.
0: And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne.
1: And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy "Worthy are you to take take the book book
0: and to break break its seals,
1: for you were slain and purchased for God with
0: your blood men from every every tribe and and tongue and and people and and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth.
1: Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy Worthy is the the Lamb lamb
0: that was slain slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and and might, and honor, and and glory, and and blessing.
1: blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To
0: "To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb,
1: be blessing,
0: and honor, and glory, and and dominion, dominion forever forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.